welcome back to Rise to Liberty, the first show of the year. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful New Year's. Today, I am joined by Liquid Zulu. But before we jump into everything real quick, uh, I am going to drop the sponsor, which is Nado Shave Company. Um, get the closest shave that you possibly can get. Uh, and I mean, they, they have the balls to sponsor this show. So that's that's something. Uh, the days of big shave are over. All of these multi-blade plastic razors, which just cause razor burn, ingrown hairs. You don't need them. They're overpriced, Chinese-made junk. So get or buy from a company that uh, is veteran-owned, family-operated, and actually gives a shit about their customers. And you can go to nadoshaveco.com, N-A-D-E-A-U-S-H-A-V-E-C-O.com. Use promo code RISE15 for 15% off, and you will not regret it. It is absolutely the best uh, Nado Shave Company where tradition beats modernity. So, Liquid Zulu, how are you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? Not too bad. It's snowing over here, so it's it's been a bit of a mess. Uh, we haven't had any snow pretty much all all winter, but now we're just getting dumped on. Uh, yeah, so, at least it saved it up. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's supposed to keep going for. Uh, for the next little bit but yeah other than that it's it's going well um you know just dealing with idiots that love the state all the time i just got done arguing with somebody for like almost a full week about climate change which is ridiculous just trying to say that uh you know the state is going to censor uh any dissenting opinions from what they want to be able to make them rich or anything and for whatever reason, like this is just such a hard concept for people to grasp that science can be bought and paid for just like anything else. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, my, uh, my opinion on environmentalism is I think it's a horrible, evil ideology. I think we should uh, destroy every last bit of natural anything on earth. So I'm, <laughs> I'm a big fan of climate change. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's interesting. It's there, there's a lot of, uh, depopulation theory to, that just runs through the center of everything it's just mm. like just, just kill everybody save the earth it's like no that that seems like such a terrible idea so i did want to get into uh who are you and uh where where did you get these ideas from uh, what what led you to believe what you believe sure so um I suppose uh, initially what got me into thinking about, uh, you know, I suppose philosophy in general uh, would be the the old uh, atheism wave back when atheism plus was still a thing. Uh, you know, there were <laughs> all those like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Armored Skeptic and Dark Matter 2525, all those sort, sorts of guys, Thunderfoot yeah. as well. They, they did a bunch of like, you know, atheism videos and I was like, hell yeah, you know, that's great and all. And then uh, they they started doing um you know it started shifting from the atheism stuff into uh, the feminism rank stuff when Gamergate came along. And I think that's I saw um, a video by Sargon McCann like feminist rank compilation like number thirty two or whatever or why people hate feminists number thirty two and I was like well feminism that's just equality you know that's it doesn't yeah. seem to me but I just I watched it I was completely convinced and that's 
where I pivoted into more politics. And then further down the line, I um, saw a John Stossel video recommended and it was uh, some sort of libertarian whatever. And I was like, well, no, that's got to be nonsense. And then I would watch it trying to debunk it. And I was like, oh, you know what? He's actually saying the truth here. And um, then getting into more, um, you know, hardcore stuff is I saw a video by Michael Moreno, who I believe his channel is like private these days. But um, if, you, if you saw the video like ages ago, where it's like a, a, a debate student gets like um, thrown off the stage because uh, he cited uh, Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson. Uh, he did that video and it went viral like years ago. And that's uh, how I discovered him. And then, so I knew he was like this smart guy and everything. Uh, and then he posted this video explaining why the Supreme Court's LGBT ruling was unjust and, or, or immoral or something like that. I think he probably used the word immoral. Um, and it was basically, uh, this was a stance I'd never heard before. I was like, well, it's, it's, it seems obvious to me that uh, you know, discrimination is something which is a bad thing. That we we should we should stop people from discriminating. And he made the case that no, it's actually no, it's it's the complete opposite. We should uh, completely allow people to discriminate because it's their own it's their own damn property. Uh, he yeah. went for the exact same way, but it, that was the gist of the argument. Um, and then when I joined Michael Marino's server after that video, because I was just so uh, moved by like the uniqueness of it, I'd never seen something like that before. Um, I started getting to conversations with where like uh you know ancaps were sending me videos and i was like what's this whole anarcho-capitalism thing that also seems nonsense and i was convinced by that and then you know etc etc now i'm uh trying to unite objectivism and anarcho-capitalism because uh, i think those two philosophies need to be integrated and that is the next big step in philosophy and philosophy cannot properly progress until that integration has happened and i think i have the chops to do it. I would have to agree. Um, not only that you have the chops to do it, but also that, that, that is the next big movement. Um, so I interviewed Michael Oliver quite a while ago. Yes. I, I heard about him. He did a book on this. I haven't read it yet, but yeah, yeah. He was basically trying to do the same thing like decades yeah. ago. And you know, what's funny about him is that he just, like he wrote this book and he hung out with Murray Rothbard and he just now barely even thinks about it. It's just yeah. not even a thing to him. He's just like, Oh yeah, I just wrote this book while I was in college. And you know, I just, I, I can't even believe that people still read this. And I'm like, well, yeah, like this is, this is the next big thing. I, I can't believe that you're just like so nonchalant about it. Yeah, you need you need someone to have a hyper fixation on it. I think, which um, I definitely do. Um, that's uh, that I I don't want to. Uh, w whatever path I take in life, it's going to have to include uh, integrating objectivism and anarcho capitalism, um, or else I won't choose it. So, is is that what you would consider yourself as an anarcho capitalist? Yes, uh, in. With respect to legal theory, I'm an anarcho-capitalist, but philosophy in general, I'm, I just call myself an objectivist because I think um, it's naturally implied by objectivism, hence why I think they can be so cleanly integrated. Yeah. Um, do you kind of want to give just like a quick rundown for what both of these are, just for anybody listening that might not know? Sure. So sort of the um, most concise definition of objectivism I can 
uh, come up with would be it is the consist it's a philosophy where you consistently apply the primacy of existence um, across the board so what i mean by that is there are basically this was what is, this is the big innovation by Ayn Rand in metaphysics is that she identified that there are two fundamental stances in metaphysics either existence has primacy or consciousness has primacy so what it would look like for existence to have primacy is um you know existence exists whether or not we're conscious of it it's just going to do its own things and then we are after that and we're trying to apprehend uh, these immutable laws of nature as they are right um and then the alternative view would be where consciousness has primacy where you know uh, there are a few different forms of this there's the supernatural consciousness that would be uh, god is the one who decides what the rules of nature are and he can change them at will and it's his consciousness who has primacy then there would be primacy of the social social consciousness which would be something like well it just it, de it depends on the agreement it depends on you know your social conditioning that's what de determines uh what reality is and we if we all just decide that we want there to be uh, more money without inflation then we can just agree on that and it'll be true you know um that would be the uh, social primacy of social consciousness which is a derivation from kant and another derivation from kant is the more directly is the primacy of the personal consciousness uh, which is the idea that it is your own mind it's not really necessarily a derivation from kant but you know it's um, your own mind is dictating the laws of nature you are determining uh, that there is such a thing as causality and existence and identity and all these different things um, and that is why we have them, because you have certain structures in your brain and that projects out. Um, so uh, to highlight this, it would be, I just saw a clip on Twitter earlier, in fact, of this lady in Peru where she thought she was a witch and she was standing by a mudslide and people were like shouting her, get, get the hell away from there, there's a landslide, you're going to die. You know, and, and they're like, oh no, she, she thinks she's a witch. It's like, she's not a witch, get the, get the hell away from there. You <laughs> you know? get, get out of there. And she, she is adopting a, a stance of the primacy of consciousness there. She thinks it's her mind which controls whether or not the landslide will happen. She doesn't think that the landslide will happen if she doesn't want it to happen, right? Um, that would be the basic rundown of at least the objectivist metaphysics. Obviously, there's a whole lot more beyond that, but it's yeah. just consistently applying this view of the primacy of existence. That is the essence of objectivism. Um, so then anarcho-capitalism, what that is, it's the uh, legal theory developed by Murray Rothbard, where basically he's taking the uh, individualist anarchism of uh, Spooner and Tucker, uh, which was developed from the earlier anarchism of, of course, uh, Proudhon, where it's just sort of like no rulersism, and we don't know what exactly it means to rule someone. It's kind of vague and up in the air. And he took that and he combined it with Mises' insight of praxeology, so he's applying praxeological analysis to legal theory. And what the big takeaway from this is the non-aggression principle as like the fundamental axiom of law. Because what we're doing in law is we're trying to answer this question of, well, we've got this thing called scarcity out here where two men can't use the same stick for different ends at the same time. Uh, so therefore, ethics has to answer the question of, well, who should win in that conflict then? where conflict is contradictory actions, mutually exclusive actions. You know, Crusoe using the stick to spearfish excludes Friday from using it to stoke his fire. They can't both happen. 
So we've got this question of scarcity. How do we resolve uh, this conundrum? Who should win in the conflict? And the answer given by Murray Rothbard, which I can give the derivation for if you want. Uh, well, my derivation, at least, not Rothbard's. Um, which is uh, that the non-aggressor should win. The person who did not initiate the conflict is the one who should win. So if Crusoe got to the stick first, and he was going to the ocean to spearfish with it, then he should be the one who controls that stick. He has a right to control it. Sorry, which is what we call ownership. We say that Crusoe has a property right in that stick, i.e. when Friday comes along and tries to take it, take it from him, he, he, he isn't allowed to do that. We say that that's a bad thing, that he has violated uh, Crusoe's uh, property right there. And those would be the two main ones. And if if you if you want, uh, we we can move on to something else. But if you want, I can I can tie these two together to show why I think they are so inextricably linked with objectivism and the non-aggression principle. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's just get into it. So basically, the the idea is that um, this is a modification of Rothbard's Argumentum e Contrario for self ownership, which um, he developed uh, uh, in his Ethics of Liberty. If you just look up argumentum e contrario within there, it's, you'll probably find it. Uh, it's not a very often used term. Um, so basically, the idea is, well, we've got this problem of scarcity, so we can have conflicts. That's just definitely the case. So how should we resolve these conflicts? And there are three basic answers to this. Uh, one is the law of the jungle, where we're just like, who gives a shit? You know, just do do whatever the <laughs> hell you want. Make makes right. You know, these all fall under the auspices of law of the jungle where you're just kind of throwing up your hands and you don't care about conflicts. You, you think it's just a non-issue or something, right? Um, the reason why this would be false... Uh, sorry, I'll, I suppose I'll list. I'll list them first. Yeah. Uh, the, se the second option uh, from Law of the Jungle would be uh, so the NEP, right? Uh, where you, you have it that the non-aggressor should win the conflict, right? And then the third option is mixed law, where it's somewhere in between these two. You know, it's uh, sometimes the aggressor should win, sometimes he shouldn't, for whatever reason, right? Um, uh, so the reason why the law of the jungle is false, and the, these are the only three options you can possibly have. Either you don't care about them, either you do care about them and the non-aggressor should win, or, uh, you know, sometimes uh, the non-aggressor should win, sometimes he shouldn't, right? Because um, even if you have, like, always the aggressor should win, that's still a form of law of the jungle. Or you're just not caring yeah. and you're, you're thinking it might makes right, right? Um, so the reason why Law of the Jungle is false is that it's essentially whim worship. It is, um, I'm going to engage in, I'm going to take that stick from Crusoe because I want to, and that's the only justification I need. I don't actually have to justify this with respect to any sort of legal norms because I don't care about any of that. Um, but of course, that would be a certain ethic he's espousing. But ethics isn't just, it doesn't just float on its own. It rests upon epistemology. Uh, so what would be the epistemology he is presupposing here? He's presupposing that if he wants to do something, he therefore should do it. I.e., if he believes that it is the case that he should be go ahead and doing this, then it is in fact the case that he should go ahead and do this, which is a, a whim epistemology, I call it. Um, and that, you can see how that would then tail back into the primacy of consciousness, that it's his mind which is determining what it is that he should be doing in this situation. Right, it's it's not that reality has primacy, and he's just secondary to that. It's that uh, he his mind has primacy, right? And I suppose um, the reason why that would be false, I don't, I don't think I actually touched on this earlier. Um, you know, it, it seems you know 
sort of intuitive why the primacy of consciousness would be false. But the validation of that is basically that consciousness is consciousness of existence. You can't have this floating concept of consciousness where it's it's not conscious of anything. Because a consciousness not conscious of anything isn't a consciousness. It's a contradiction in terms. So what we have here with the primacy of consciousness view is a stolen concept. They've stolen the concept of consciousness from the primacy of existence viewpoint. And then they've tr used it and they've just taken it as being on its own. And we're going to take this as the starting point. But it depends upon the prior concept of existence, something to be conscious of. You have to be conscious of something before you can deduce that you're conscious, right? Um, yeah. So that would be the negation of the law of the jungle viewpoint. And then the second, uh, the, the third viewpoint I listed there was mixed law. Um, the reason why mixed law is false is sort of more uh, technical um, in certain respects. But, um, and I've got like a paper going over this, I could post it or something at some point. I'll, I'll, I'll post it somewhere at some point. Uh, it floats <laughs> around there, uh, here and there, um, where basically um, if, we, if we have this uh, sort of mixed law view where it's like, well, yes, sometimes we should be aggressing on people. Sometimes we should be doing this. That still ultimately uh, nails down into the primacy of uh, consciousness it's still a whim epistemology it's in this situation you know the fewer says that the the aggressor should win and therefore it's the case so it's primacy of the fewer's consciousness or in this situation we've all voted that the aggressor should win it would be primacy of social consciousness right or in this case it would be the proletarian logic says that this aggression is fine so therefore again primacy of social consciousness polylogism right so that would be the negation of that and then also on the mixed law view there's there's a an interesting feature which comes out of this which is argumentation ethics which comes from hopper where if you were to propose th this this should sort of like stop anyone in their tracks when they're when they're trying to propose a mixed law system uh, if you're if you're to propose any sort of mixed law system you're doing so in an argumentation but an argumentation is itself a, a rights respecting conflict avoiding activity so the only yeah. way you could possibly propose um, your stance is by first accepting, well, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely not true whenever I'm trying to be reasonable, whenever I'm trying to be civilized. Yeah, yeah, no, my stance isn't true. But sometimes it's true, you know, and, and I can't ever argue in those situations. I can't ever be civilized in those situations. It's like they're already <laughs> accepting that they're being uncivilized there. They're already accepting implicitly that what they're doing is whim worship. And then so we've we've destroyed the law of the jungle and mixed law and the only alternative left is the nep so the nep is true and uh, that's basically my argument uh that, i think that's a pretty solid argument um i i would actually if if there's anybody out there that ever listens to this i would be very curious to anyone's argument against that um and i'm i'm sure you get quite a quite a bit of pushback uh, well, I've I've seen you on Twitter, and uh, some of the arguments that you've had, um, which which actually does lead me to to wonder where does hedonism sit in all of this? Is is that more of the law of the jungle? So hedonism isn't necessarily a legal viewpoint. Um, I would say law of the jungle would you know hedonism as applied to law would be. A form of the law of jungle, certainly. 
Um, yeah. The hedonism is sort of broader, where it's this sort of uh, almost Nietzschean or uh, Sternright viewpoint, where uh, anything is a val- is a moral value if it's intended to be for myself. You know, if if the goal of the action is to benefit myself, that means it's beneficial. Um, what uh, Ayn Rand says about that is basically that it's a package deal. Uh, there are there are two fundamental questions you have to answer when you're making any sort of ethical theory. First, you have to answer what a value is, and then you have to answer uh, who the recipient of value should be. And both altruism and hedonism substitute the first question with the second question. They just ignore that first question of caring about what a value is in the first place, and then just go on and say, well, if it's intended for myself, then it must be good, and that is a moral action. Right, um, so they have to untangle this package deal because these are two different questions. They can't be answered yeah. in the same breath, um, and that would be the defeat of both altruism and hedonism. Because altruism is just saying instead of being where it's whatever it's for me and I'm the intended recipient, that that makes uh, it a good action. It's whenever it's intended for someone else. So long as I'm not the recipient, then it's good. Right. So it would, they would be destroyed in the same argument. Yeah. So where do you see at at least I, I I would say because in case anyone doesn't know, you're actually over in Europe, right? The UK. Mm-hmm. So in Western civilization, um, where where do you view Western civilization as sitting currently in in respects to where we are legally, because it seems as though things are heading in the opposite direction in every way that, at least here in the States, like if you, this country seems to be heading in the opposite direction in which our founding fathers um, intended our legal system to head. In fact, this is, I would view the United States, the exact type of government that was warned about by, you know, people like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington. Um, We are now living under the exact type of government that we were warned about. Uh, So how, how do you view Western civilization in where we are heading legally? So basically the, uh, the cause of, all of this is uh, the rise of Kant within philosophy, because there was this big, you know, there are there are skeptic waves throughout all of the history of philosophy, uh, you know, where it's just like, well, we, maybe we can't know anything. Who cares, you know? And whenever you have one of these skeptic waves, it, it always gets answered. Skepticism can't, just can't last forever. It, it's not possible. Um, so it, it ends up getting answered at some point, either by an Aristotle or by a Plato, uh, right? But uh, in the wake of Hume, when Hume is posing his question of how can we achieve any certainty of re- of reality, um, then Kant was the one who answered him, who was the, the arch-Platonist, uh, basically. Uh, you couldn't yeah. have asked for a worse philosopher to answer Hume. And that is what <laughs> caused the uh, rise of Nazi Germany. It's what caused the rise of communism. It's what's caused every problem uh, with respect to our legal system uh, you, you see today. Um, and that is why the U.S. has gone downhill. It hasn't gone downhill, uh, you know, because of like, oh, there aren't enough great men, 
or you know the psychological conditions are ripe for a dictator or anything like that this is all downstream from philosophy uh, the reason why the us is going downhill is because they accepted uh, kantian philosophy at least implicitly um so on kant's view uh, reason is completely negated man's mind is completely negated it has no power to do anything uh, so you have to look towards these all-powerful mystic dictators and they'll tell you what to do and uh, you, you see this all over the place i mean people like to call Rand's villains unrealistic, but really, I've, I've never found more realistic villains than Rand's villains. <laughs> so they're, they're, they surround you every day. You just have to know what to look for. Um, so that is what has caused uh, the US to decline. But, you know, now we have an answer to Kant. We have Ayn Rand, thankfully. And that is why I view what I'm doing as the most important philosophical project, uh, because Ayn Rand herself wasn't entirely consistent in applying the primacy of existence. Uh, she wasn't consistent specifically in politics. She viewed politics as an actual area of philosophy, which it isn't. Uh, so what she was doing in her politics was, um, well, give, we we have um, man, we, we want to be supporting man's reason, right? So what sort of society should we have in order to allow man to be rational? Uh, and that's already taken, like taking like a, a societal primacy there. Right, it's uh, what, what sort of how do we want to organize society? How should we or organize the polis? Right, but the polis doesn't have any sort of actual existence unto itself. It's just a derivative of the individuals that make it up. So the real question she should have been answering was how do you resolve conflicts? And this is what Murray Rothbard got right. And if you just apply Ayn Rand's reasoning to the correct question, which is how do you resolve conflicts? then you get this brilliant system of anarcho-capitalist legal theory properly uh, situated in its place in philosophy, and the whole system just completely works, right? And that is what is required to truly make a formidable force against Kant. Because Kant, say what you want about him, but uh, the guy was really rigorous with everything he did. Like, uh, he, he didn't cut many corners. Uh, it's, it's basically impossible to read a single word he says because uh, he speaks in philosophies rather than English. Uh, but he was very rigorous still. He, he, he built <laughs> yeah. up this massive system and like every part like connects to other parts. It's not clear how it connects. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's in there if you have the correct mystic chops, I suppose. Um, but yeah, so we need a truly down to earth grounded philosophy, which everybody can understand and which completely annihilates every single myth born from the primacy of consciousness. And that is what I'm pursuing here. What do you believe to be the the biggest thing standing in the way of people accepting this? Because when I came across this idea of anarcho-capitalism, it, it just seemed to fit so naturally. And it just, I mean, I, I hate to make this argument because it's not an argument, but it, it felt right. <laughs> you know, it, it just seemed, it seemed correct. I, I don't understand how else to explain it other than just that. And it's yes. so simple. So so that makes sense because, um, you know, I, I have had the same experience and many other people have had the same experience. What, is, what this is, is we are honest in our uh, viewpoints. We are honestly trying to comprehend reality and we implicitly understand uh, all of these facts about uh, metaphysics, epistemology, law. We implicitly understood them the whole time. Um, 
But then when you get that explication of it, it's like a just, oh, that's so obvious. Of course, that's the correct way of doing it. Because if you're truly an honest person, then you must implicitly accept uh, at least the basic uh, version of uh, objectivism, right? So what would be keeping people from accepting this, uh, certain people at least, is that they are chronic evaders. They are chronically just ignoring their sense data. They're chronically just ignoring reality, trying to push it away. And as they do this more and more and more, they start having all these problems cropping up, which are born from their own choice to evade. And they just, that makes it even harder for them to actually start the task of like, you know, rebuilding this uh, uh, house of cards or whether they, that they've, that they keep building, you know, making it proper, right? Uh, I should say. Um, that is what stops people from accepting um, anarcho capitalism and objectivism. And fundamentally, um, it's not, so the, the upside, upshot of that for, uh, praxis is you aren't able to actually think for them just as you can't digest food for them and uh, they have to they have to make that choice to actually think on their own um but there are people out there who are honest people and who really do want to go about this and apprehend reality and you just have to speak the message and when they hear it they're gonna join along they're gonna be like yeah that's completely correct and you know a certain subset of them are gonna be like actually like actively going along with you and trying to also preaching the message and this is the uh, uh, uh it's it's found in a lot of different political theories um what one one big one would be uh, albert j knox essay um uh, re, uh, something about the remnant i can't remember the exact title of it um but basically the idea is uh, there, there are there's this remnant out there which if you just speak the message uh, on their pulpit every single day uh, they're going to hear you and then they're going to start spreading as well and then more will hear you and you know at first everyone's laughing at you laughing at the room but eventually you know you start getting a, a nice little following uh, we, we call these people when they're actually fighting along with you the vanguard and uh, once you have a sizable vanguard you don't need that many people to really do a big shift because most people are second handers they are just following along with whatever uh, the political temperature is at any given moment they don't really think for themselves at all and you know lenin found this out he he had like what 15 percent of like the political seats in russia and he was able to take the entire country over like a very small amount of political power but he would he had situated himself correctly in order to take over the great the biggest country on earth i shouldn't say greatest but yeah biggest country on earth um and if, if you want to know more about that specifically look up uh, libertarian leninism on youtube there's some videos by springtime of nations which goes over this in greater detail that seems like quite a mix libertarian leninism <laughs> it's basically a leninist strategy uh, but applied to libertarianism interesting i mean at least you know lenin was successful <laughs> <laughs> you know of, of all things he he might have not been correct, but he was uh, successful nonetheless. <laughs> that's 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 really interesting. I'll have to look into that. Um, so, so it basically just comes down to people just not being honest and just rejecting truth. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, every everything that I've dealt with dealing with people, it it seems exactly as that it's just people evading everything 
I, I've <laughs> given so much evidence to certain people in certain situations and it's almost like I didn't and they just <laughs> don't even acknowledge that and then continue on with just whatever bullshit argument they have. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so my question is, is because obviously you've dealt with this as well. Um, there, there's a certain point where it just, it doesn't even become worth it to continue the conversation, obviously, because there's just like you said, you can't think for them. They have to think for themselves. So I guess my question would be is for the people who do recognize all of these things who do accept objective truth, what motivation uh, do you have to just like keep going and doing this? Because it seems as though a lot of people these days, even if they see these things, they they tend to want to give up eventually because it gets so, you know, uh, it, it seems so hopeless. Right. So what what keeps you motivated to just keep going and arguing these points? Well, for me, it's a it's a selfish motivation, as you know, the classic objectivist would say, uh, of course. Um, <laughs> so the reason why I do it is because I want to do this as a career. It's the only thing I find uh, particularly enjoyable is uh, discussing philosophy and learning about philosophy and doing these things. I find it a very uh, personally enjoyable thing to do, and I want to be able to continue doing it. So if I do it uh, for a public, um, you know, I'm not really concerned about whether my uh, you know, great, great, great grandchildren will live under objectivism because I'm not going to be alive anymore. Um, but I am concerned with whether or not I can keep doing this sustainably. And that would require me turning it into a career, which requires me doing it publicly. Hey, I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> um, I do want to ask you about one particular type of person, though. Um, for anyone who didn't catch this, uh, Liquid Zulu was already on my channel uh, last year. Uh, we had we had held a debate, um, first debate for my channel. I thought it went over very well, um, but I want to ask about the minarchist because to me, some of these people seem to be the most frustrating people for me to deal with. And uh, the the person you had debated, Roger, he is a friend of mine. Uh, you know, I've, I've grown, grown really close with him over, uh, like the COVID thing is when we had met. And, um, however, that part of him, I do not like <laughs> that. That's just not something about him that I like. Um, but I can have friends with differing opinions, but what do you believe it is with the minarchist? Why is it so easy to believe 90%? And then just like this last five, ten percent, they're just like, no, 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 no. I, I, I can't go without a military, or I can't go without, you know, border patrol. Huh. Um, let's see. I think it's just this general tendency we see a lot, uh, even beyond the minarchists, where people are unaccustomed to truly consistent thinking and being consistent in every aspect because they get uncomfortable after a certain point and then they listen to their uncomfortableness they place that over the truth and then they're like well i'm not gonna go any further you know um i mean we see this with with not just the minarchist but also uh walter block he's an anarchist right and he says there's such a thing as a virtuous crime 
Uh, he thinks that, you know, well, yes, the NEP is a general rule of thumb. It applies almost always. But then there are these cases where, uh, you know, someone's suicidal and they're going to jump off of a cliff. And, uh, you know, that's it's fine for you to violate their property rights and pull them off that cliff. You'd, you'd be committing a crime, sure, but it's a virtuous crime. And then uh, I, I address these sorts of people in the final lesson of uh, my libertarian ethics course, um, where basically it's it's the view that law is not a subset of ethics, that it perhaps intersects that there are certain crimes which uh, are indeed criminal, but it's not a subset, which, which is what I claim, that, yeah, law is an actual perfect subset of ethics, that there is no such a thing as a crime that you should commit. And the sort of... I've already gone over the derivation of the NEP, which was from ethics, so you can already see there how you'd get it to being a subset, um, but also just on a general level, um, if law is not a subset of ethics, what exactly is law describing? If it's not describing uh, when and you know wh how you should deal with conflicts, what are you saying when you say that something is a right? What are you saying when I have a, when I say that I have a property right in something? What exactly does that claim mean? It, it, does it just mean that if you were to try and take it from me, that that would be aggression? So okay, so what? Right? So what if it's aggression? Who gives a shit? Right? It doesn't matter. Right? So that would be a general tendency where people are unwilling to really be entirely consistent in their viewpoint. And I, I'm not sure what exactly it is that uh, keeps people from that uh, if they've gone so far, you know. But, you know, after a certain point, they just get a little bit too uncomfortable and then they place their 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 feelings over the facts, in the words of Ben Shapiro. <laughs> you know, for for such a little little whiny man he he has said a few great things um i don't know if that makes him a great man or not but uh i, I would probably argue not yeah um but <laughs> especially these days uh man his whining has just gotten out of control <laughs> but yeah it the, the minarchist always just seems so interesting to me i understand the rationale as far as like why that might be attractive but it's, it, I sat and argued with, with a gentleman one night um, about shipping lanes. And he was telling me that, of course, we couldn't have, you know, full anarcho-capitalism because, you know, we need a military to protect the shipping lanes and all of these other things. And this was something that he did in the military. Uh, it, it was part of his job was, you know, uh, basically being a privateer. Uh, being hired by the state to be able to protect shipping lanes. And I flat out told him and got him to agree that it would be better for him to start a business focused on doing exactly that. He has the experience to do it. And it would be better for him to do it instead of having somebody like the government who has no experience in doing this, that they outsource everything. And he agreed to it and still just couldn't make that extra leap to be like, I understand what you're trying to say. And so I, I view the minarchist or people that just can't take that last little step of faith or just acknowledging the objective reality of it. I just find those people the most frustrating because it's, they're so close. They're just like right there. So, but 
I do believe that 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 debate did go over well. Uh, I got a lot of good feedback, even from your from your audience as well. Uh, I I thought it was good. I thought it was eye opening. Uh, just for the record, I think you did win the debate. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, you're an honest man. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, one thing I did want to touch on this this is a very um controversial topic. I don't think it should be. Um, however, there's not too many people I would genuinely want to talk about this about or talk about with just because people just get crazy. But I had seen a an argument you were having with somebody over the age of consent, which as soon as people hear that, they automatically go to like a, a sexual place, which seems very strange to me mm-hmm. that that's like the automatic thing that they think of. Mm-hmm. Um, because this, this involves so many other things, uh, the right to work is a, is a huge thing. It's like, yeah, the child labor laws. Um, why is this in, in your opinion, why, why do you believe that for one, that this has been spun so negatively and why has it been, um, asphyxiated, I guess, to, to libertarians or amongst those group of people as an insult? Well, I think basically um, people sense the uncomfortable territory uh, very easily when it comes to age of consent. And, you know, it's uh, the uncomfortableness is just at an all-time high there. And they're not confident that they can work out an amicable solution here. So they just leave the whole thing alone. They don't want to unravel that little bow that they've got there. I'll just accept whatever the current social norms are and then nobody can blame me for accepting the current social norm they can't blame me for accepting that you know it's just it's just what everybody believes uh basically they just have a lack of confidence in their ability to really address this properly and the the, be- the best uh sort of argument on this front on the front of children's rights the best um uh, sort of treatment of it ever is this paper called uh, Ian from a guy called Ian Hersom, friend of mine, um, uh, called "A Rational Theory of the Rights of Children." You can look it up. Uh, you can find the PDF online quite easily. Um, and basically, the, the the idea is on the rational approach to it is we have to just throw out all of these cultural norms. You know, we're not we're not just accepting them on face value. We've got to really analyze the situation. What is it that uh, would be specific to a child that would sort of play on rights theory and the idea is that a child can't communicate his will and that is the precise legal definition of a child given uh, on this viewpoint uh, so a person who's asleep they would be a child in the legal sense a person who's in a coma they would be a child a person who's like passed out in the snow they'd be a child uh, and of, of course the very young they would be a child right uh, they, the what is specific to them uh, as against anybody else is that they cannot communicate their will uh you know so if you if you come across the sleeping man in the snow and uh you know you want to take him to hospital uh what would be the justification of taking him to the hospital is there some implicit contract which a lot of people like to use there where you're allowed to take him to the hospital it's not really clear what exactly is being contracted there because contract just is a set of terms for how you transfer property from different people He's certainly not transferring his body because you can't do that. And so implicit contracts are out. So 
what the idea is, is that you don't know what it is that he wants done with his property. So what you're allowed to do to him is to preserve him uh, in order that he can then wake up at some point and tell you what he wants done. And then he can negotiate for his own care. And, uh, you know, maybe he'll get pissed off. It's like, well, I, I, didn't, I wanted to die out there. It's like, well, okay, you know, write that on your chest next time. You know, and then <laughs> make it clear that you want to die yeah. out in the snow. Uh, and then and then people won't be allowed to do that to you, right? Um, but it was unknowable at that point, is the idea. that So therefore, you're allowed to preserve that will until such a time that it can be read, until such a time that he's able to communicate with you. And the same is true for the very young. Uh, they are not uh, physically capable of like really understanding language. They haven't quite developed the you know uh, prowess which would be required to say, uh, yes, I want to go down in that coal mine, and I understand all the risks there, and I really understand what it is that I'm saying here, right? Rather than just like you know repeating certain sentences like people speak in their sleep all the time. That doesn't mean yeah. that they're consenting to whatever, right? So that is what. It is about a child, uh, you know, in in the sense of a very young person. That is why you aren't allowed to just, you know, have sex with them or send them into a burning volcano or throw them up onto a power line or something like that. That is why, because they don't understand what it is they're saying. So they might as well just be saying blah, 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 right? It's, it's, it would be no different in terms of law. Um, but as a child develops, they start to understand certain things. Maybe they can understand what it actually entails for them to have a paper round, you know, where they start yeah. delivering papers to the different neighbors and they get some money from that. Maybe they understand that at a certain point and then they'd be allowed to consent to that type of work. And, you know, the anti-child labor laws, they're, they're, it's basically driven by people who are jealous and don't have that kind of drive and want to see everybody else be have that drive stamped out of them. So it's like, no, you're not allowed to do that little Johnny. You're not allowed to work in your family's cafe or something, even though they fully understand what it is that they're accepting here. And that is why there's no such a thing as an age of consent, because people develop at different rates uh, and for different things. So it might be that I can, I, I, I can understand the risks involved in doing a paper round, but I can't understand the risks involved in working in a nuclear reactor. So I wouldn't be allowed to consent to that line of work. Uh, but I would be allowed to consent to the paper route. Um, yeah. And so different people are going to develop at different rates. Like, you know, there are some people, uh, they, they, they have like, you know, uh, certain mental problems where it might take them until they're in their 30s before they can really grasp what it means to uh, consent to sex, right? And we wouldn't want these people to just be raped, essentially, by saying, no, they're 18, they must be able to consent now. And, uh, you know, it, it goes the other way. There might be somebody who is 17 years old and, you know, they, they, they are perfectly capable of understanding what it is that they're doing. And you're just saying, nope, uh, they're, they're not 18 yet, so they're clearly not able to do anything, right? And it's, it's the same, it's like, there are so many instances where it's clear that this is an insufficient system, age of consent, that is. Um, you know, you have uh, basically like the, the Romeo and Juliet laws where they're both under 18, and then suddenly they're able to consent now. Like, it's not clear why that would be the case. And, you know, you, you have like different ages for different things. So it's clear that they accept that, yeah, oh, you, you can probably consent to sex at 18, but you can't consent to having alcohol. So they, they understand that there are different rates that you yeah. develop certain capabilities before other capabilities. But then they just don't apply this consistently because um, basically the, the state can't handle such a thing because they're incompetent. And they don't want, they don't think that they have the ability to really unravel this bow 
and really address this situation seriously. So they just ignore it completely and they don't want to touch it at all. Well, and how how could a state which I, I would argue doesn't actually exist, it, it's mainly just a bunch of symbols and ceremonies and it, like a state doesn't actually exist. It's just another group of people that just claims themselves to be a state. But how could an institution like that even begin to unravel such a thing? Of course, they're going to have to blanket in anything. That, that, that's why, you know, everyone is demanded to get health care or uh, everyone, it, it's, it's uh, like vehicle insurance. That, that gets me hot. That, that gets me so pissed. And it's like, of course, that's, that's why everyone's uh, required to get vehicle insurance because they can't determine on an individual basis who is more likely to get in, in a uh, vehicle accident or more likely uh, or who deserves to uh, have a certain amount of coverage or any of these other things which would actually make it more uh, more sensible. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense to me. There there are very, I mean, I, I can't think, at least off the top of my head, of anything, well, for one, I can't think of anything good that the state does. But, uh, <laughs> there, uh, I mean, they're, they're very good at violence. They're, they're very good at that. Um, well, I mean, are they even good at violence? Uh, I think uh, an ANCAP uh, uh, private security force would probably be far superior at uh, enacting violence. Yeah, but they'd, they'd be more just true. in it. They're good at being criminals. Yes, uh, they're, they're good at being bad. Yes, <laughs> they're just good at being bad at everything they do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's the, the the age of consent thing. It just really confuses me and. I was speaking with a friend about this the other day. It really pisses me off with the libertarians because like all of a sudden there'll be somebody running for office and there'll be somebody who's well-known or whatever and they'll get on a legitimate debate stage and then they'll get up and say something about age of consent. And that's probably not the best way to run. That's probably not the best thing to put out on your... uh, at the very front of your campaign. Um, even if it's a principled stance, it's uh, it's it's just always amazing to me. And it's it seems as though that that has been used to keep a lot of, uh, a lot of people who might be able to affect actual change to keep them suppressed because the, the general public hears that and they're not going to be okay with that mm-hmm. because but, their, their their mind automatically goes to this uh, really disgusting place. What what the principled people out there, the remnant, should be thinking about this is, yes, the public are going to be disgusted, but the public will also be disgusted when you say that you want to legalize fent- fentanyl, right? The public are going to be dis- disgusted by your entire platform. Like, they're completely irrelevant. And the public, uh, the, the sheep people, they're completely ineffectual in any sort of political change. They can't do anything. They're just basically, we've got this big ball rolling down the hill and we're trying to change the direction of this ball. Uh, The ball is filled with these people. They're just the inertia of the ball. They're just in there adding mass to this ball. They're not changing its direction at all. They're just in that ball and they're just the inertia. 
and they're going to make it hard to shift the ball. You know, you shouldn't be concerned with making sure that you shouldn't, when they say, hey, don't be shifting the ball like that. You should be shifting the ball like I'm saying. Uh, don't listen to them because they're not fucking shifting the ball. It's not their job to shift the ball. They can't shift the yeah. ball unless they actually, you know, graduate, grow the fuck up and start thinking, which ironically, you know, the, the, these people who are so concerned about the age of consent, uh, they, they have a, a far lesser intellectual capacity uh, than a lot of uh, children. So, you know, <laughs> that, that tells you everything you need to know, I think. Well, you know, thanks to those uh, government schools, you know, there, there's a lot of them. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about, cause I thought you would have an interesting take on this is what do you feel, if any, is the place of cer certain ideas in, uh, not only the individual, but society as a whole, um, certain ideas like duty and honor, do those play a role and, if they do, how important are these ideas? So I'd say something like uh, in duty, um, if you're taking it as like a, a deontology sort of thing, or like Kantian ethics, where it's like uh, you, you should do this because it's your duty for no other reason, uh, that would be a bad sense of duty. But if it's something like, oh, um, I have a duty to refrain from infringing upon your rights, uh, that's a good sense of duty. It's not just because it's your, your duty, it's because otherwise you're a whim-worshipping uh, jungle demon, right? That, that would be the reason why. <laughs> there, there's a there's further stuff to... It's, it's duty is just a stand-in for this whole array of prior ethics which is going on under there. Um, and for, so, for something like honour, um, let's sort of analyse the concept of what it means to be honourable. Um, Maybe that means that you are doing right by your ancestors, in which case it would be uh, a bad thing. Don't don't be doing things because you'd be doing right by your ancestors. Um, maybe honorable means something like integrity, though, where you know you are just really just being yourself and sticking to your guns, and you're not caring what the hordes of second-handers are telling you. Like the sort of in this sense of honorable, where it means integrity. Uh, the good fictional archetype for this would be Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead. Um, you know, that, if, if you read that book, it's a brilliant book. Um, that'll give you an idea of what I'm getting at when I say integrity, where it's just a completely integrated man. He He's just stalwart in doing things the right way. Uh, he isn't concerned with compromising his values uh, for inferiors, for second-handers, for anybody like that. Um, and that would be a good sense of honourable. So if, if if that is the sense that somebody is saying you should be honourable in, then definitely, you know, stick to your word, as well. so it would be yeah. a way to say that you're honourable. He's honourable, he sticks to his word. You know, that, yeah, definitely be honourable in that sense. Another thing I, I kind of wanted to touch on too, and this is something I've, I've really been digging into, the like the importance of, uh, because it seems like we are in such a, deficit but the importance of shame in or uh, like social stigma because i my personal opinion is that there is a first of all there's a healthy way to go about it obviously something like this could be abused and used against people in in a very negative way but i can't think of anything that 
couldn't be abused and used in a negative way. Um, but there seems to be like this ultimate deficit of shame, which seems to be some, some type of like self-governance on like a societal level. Um, and I, I look at things like, uh, you know, that the, the anti-shame movement, which just it seems to have sprung up out of nowhere over the last, I don't know, six to eight years or something, you know, fat shaming, slut shaming, what like whatever. And I'm not saying these people should be shamed necessarily. However, there, there seems to be this proponent of fighting against shame and all the people who do it seem to be status. And so I kind of wanted to get your, your take on uh, what do you believe the, the, the importance of shame plays in a culture? So there are sort of, uh, I think two different angles I want to approach this from. Um, the first is this idea of like, you know, slut shaming, fat shaming, uh, what this is getting at, what shaming is meaning there is really judgment. It's judging uh, what someone is doing. And, you know, this goes back to uh, the Christian ethics, judge not, right? Uh, it's not your place to be judging these people. It's That's on God to judge them. Um, uh, so in that sense, the, the anti-shaming movement would be an outgrowth of Christian ethics, and it would be horrible. I think it's completely incorrect. It's a complete inversion of the correct ethical principle, which is judge. You should be judging people. You should be evaluating everything that comes across your vision. You should be integrating this knowledge, yeah. seeing uh, how it plays into your life. Is this good? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Is this a true thing? Is this a false thing? You know, doing this with everything that comes across you, right? You should be evaluating everything. Judge everything is the correct ethical principle there. And then there'd be another sense, which would be uh, shame is meaning like, you know, this deep sense of like, oh, I, I'm, I'm feeling bad about something here. This feel this feels wrong, and you know uh, again with the Christian ethics it would be um, you are a sinner by birth. You should feel constantly shameful of yourself. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, which is funny, right? Um, that you should be it's sort of a guilt thing. You should be guilty. You should are feeling guilty for something. Now there is a proper rule, but you shouldn't be feeling guilty just as a matter of principle. Just all the time feeling guilty for everything you do right because that's incorrect you're just you know you're not applying uh, a correct evaluation to everything here um unless you really are just that evil right yeah <laughs> evil. but you that, that is the idea feel guilty when you do something that is wrong you should feel guilty for that and you should beat yourself up to the correct degree uh so this is another thing where you know maybe you make a mistake um uh, you, you do something bad, like you, uh, I don't know, you, you're like playing baseball and you hit the ball and you, you like, you smash somebody's window. It's like, oh Jesus, I, I, that was something bad that I did. Uh, you should beat yourself up to the degree that it was within your control. Right. Um, so another example would be, uh, I, don't, I can't think of another example, my apologies, but the, yeah. So not everything is within your control. You need to really analyze what is actually within your control. Maybe, uh, you know, it's something like, so to elucidate that principle, where, you know, it is, it is within my control to uh, choose to speak Spanish, uh, but indirectly. I can do that by 
taking Spanish lessons over and over and over again. And eventually I'll know how to speak Spanish, right? Uh, so that is within my control, but indirectly. I can't just choose to speak Spanish tomorrow, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas something which is in my direct control is what to say next. Whether I put my thumb or my middle finger up right now, you know, like I, I, I could, I chose to do that. I was able to choose to do that. That's within my direct control. Um, so, you know, really make sure, like, so there are two deviations you can make where you're feeling too guilty, and where you're not feeling guilty enough. Where you are, you know, you you've done something. And it's like, oh well, that's an impasse. Water on the bridge. You know, maybe you like uh, killed someone. You know, just to get, to get a crazy yeah. example. And you're like, well, you know, I, I don't agree that I, that I was good. And, you know, I, I've learned my lesson, so I shouldn't feel guilty about it. Because I've learned my lesson. I learned that it was wrong. And now I'm just going to go along with it. No, you should, even if you learned your lesson, you should understand that that was a horrible thing that you did. And you should feel very, very guilty about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it just is crazy to me. I've I've argued with so many people about and then this kind of all just ties in together it's really one big question to me um you know the the, the question of like honor and duty and uh having shame or feeling shame for doing shameful things um because there seems to be especially within the libertarian movement um so i'm i'm really involved in you know, the libertarian circles in my area. And so I have a lot of these conversations and there there's this really fine line, but it's very pronounced between libertarianism and libertinism. And there seems to be a lot of libertines who just come in and there's just like no morals, no ethics. It's just just like this hedonism based philosophy or it's, it's so hands off. It's like, well, whatever happens, happens. It doesn't really matter. Um, as long as, you know, I'm not actively going and stealing the little old lady's purse, mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter even if somebody does because, well, you know, it's, it's not my place. And, to me, I think that that's such a bastardization of any sort of objective truth about liberty itself. Mm -hmm. So, go yeah, ahead. so that would, that would be sort of like a related error to those who think that ethics, uh, sorry, that law is not a subset of ethics. Those who think that law is all there is in ethics and there's no ethics outside of law that, uh, you know, uh, just do whatever you want so long as you're not hurting people and it's fine it's good right they're they're ignoring like you know ethics answers a subtly different question to the question that is being answered by law and they need to recognize this and recognize that you know what they're doing is being uh, they, they've studied one narrow area of ethics and try to generalize it to all of ethics but it doesn't work that way you know they have to study ethics in general if they want a general ethical theory so do you believe, and maybe this is uh, the, the incorrect way to ask this, but like, do you believe as far as if somebody was 
of that mindset that uh, secular ethics would be a way to go. Now, I'm I'm a really big fan of uh, of UPB universally preferred behavior. Um, I think there are, you know, it, it's not perfect, obviously, but I am a big fan of the concept that there is a universally preferred behavior across all cultures, across all societies. Uh, I don't really care where you are. It's, it's wrong to murder somebody. So um, do you believe that that's something worth people diving into, whether they're novice or even a little bit more advanced down the uh, philosophical trail, I guess. Um, well, I haven't actually read uh, Mall News book on. It. I think it was a book or something. Yeah. Uh, so I couldn't. I couldn't give uh, a proper uh, opinion on it yet. Um, but I would say definitely with respect to the lead up to that. Uh, yeah, you would need a secular morality because you really need to ground your morality in proper philosophy. Don't ground it in this supernaturalism. Don't ground it in this mysticism, because you're just giving ammunition to all of the worst kinds of people. You're not doing anything good there. Yeah. So, what do you think? Like the the fundamental belief of, I, I'm just going to categorize them as just the statists, because there there just seems to be, like, and I'm I'm talking about people that straight cuck for the state, <laughs> like these these people that just without a doubt you talk to them and i mean you know the marauds people um mm -hmm. what what do you think like the fundamental basis of these people's belief and view on the world is um because it doesn't quite seem historically at least to me it doesn't quite seem historically to be of any one particular status belief it it seems like a like a new like a neo sort of statist. So, I would say with uh, these people that what what's going on there is they have an insecurity about their themselves uh, because they, I don't think they have an explicit philosophy at all. Uh, they have implicitly through osmosis just absorbed the general message from all every philosopher ever that your mind is worthless. It can't know anything. You're worthless. And you should just uh, shut up and uh, obey your duty. And then they're looking for someone to give them some direction to do something because they think that they can't do it themselves. Um, and then they look towards the state and the state tells them you have to do X, Y, Z. Uh, they, they look towards uh, the church. The church tells them you have to do X, Y, Z. It's uh, all of the, they look towards, they're looking for some sort of dictator to tell them what to do. Um, and Fundamentally, I don't think um, it's necessarily. Can't remember exactly what I was gonna go into next. Um... So it's something about them it being a a new form of state. Yes. Yeah, so I don't think it would be understandable that there there's a, perhaps a bit of a selection bias here. Uh, because these hordes, uh, who are unthinking completely, they have <laughs> zero effect on the history of philosophy. Uh, they're completely irrelevant in terms of the history of philosophy. So we're not recording uh, the Marodzer uh, from uh, pre-Socratic times. 
We're not recording yeah. the Marauder from medieval times. We're not recording any of these people because they're completely irrelevant. They don't do anything. They, don't, they aren't moving philosophy in any particular direction. They're just the inertia, which is just getting pushed along. And we don't record the inertia at all. And so they're always going to just seem like, well, we haven't heard things like this before. Um, but, you know, in the explicit form, we can trace down where explicitly did this come from. It came from probably someone like Kant or uh, Plato or Aristotle, someone like that. You know, some actual yeah. philosopher out there has originated these beliefs and they are just kind of like vaguely spouting them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's another thing that really irritates me about a lot of this is because I've, I've spent a lot of time reading spent a lot of time by myself looking into these ideas and obviously I can't expect everyone to waste their time reading. I don't really think it was a waste of time, but nonetheless, it's just such an ignorant place to come from and then come in with such like <laughs> such confidence that this is the way that things should be or that it was, it was just like arguing with these, uh, the, these people pushing climate change. And it's like, this is what I do. Like I am constantly trying to fight against censorship and uh, trying to speak objective truth, trying to get the message out there. And then there's just like these group of people that regardless of whatever is said to them, whatever logic or reason evidence is provided, it's just like a complete rejection. And it's like, oh, well, no, science is not bought and paid for. It's just that the science is popular because good ideas eventually float to the top. And it's like that is such an ignorant position to take. Yeah, so on, on like their, um, their confidence that you're mentioning there, I think it's basically an analogous thing that happens when there's like this certain type of brain damage where the part of your brain which deals with like yourself, like who you are, uh, just gets like destroyed or damaged in some way. And you just have no clue who you are. And so you just adopt whatever personality is in front of you. So if you see, um, you know, a bus driver, you're going to pretend like you're a bus driver. You're going to start acting like a bus driver. And then you see like, you know, a cyclist you're going to think that you're a cyclist you're going to act like a cyclist you know you just yeah. adopt whatever is going on around you just whoever you're looking at you're going to pretend that you're them right yeah. um uh, it's like mimic syndrome or mirror syndrome or something like that <laughs> yeah um so i think that is a there's a similar basis here with these people is that they have seen that this is the way that debates go that somebody is some prime mover is confident and is espousing their position confidently and they've just adopted not only the position secondhand without actually evaluating the position and jordan peterson talks about that in his maps of meaning where they're uh, they're adopting these positions they're borrowing these ideas and they haven't actually uh, digested them at all they're bromides in the words of ayn rand um they're, they're just completely packaged philosophy basically uh not only are they adopting that borrowing that but they're also borrowing the form of engagement from these people they're borrowing that, oh, yes, I should have the same confidence, even though I have no clue what was the basis of that confidence yeah. or what has drive, driven any of this. I'm just going to adopt it secondhand because they're doing a similar thing here. They're negating their reason. They're avoiding uh, using the reason at any cost, right? 
Uh, they're trying to stop using their brain, which is the same thing as this brain damage thing I was talking about, where you, yeah. you just you just don't have a view of yourself at all. You you uh, and you, you just adopt whatever's going on around you. That's a very similar thing to the second hander. And so it really is just the difference between a leader and a follower. Mm-hmm. That that this follower is just gonna mimic something they saw that might have been successful or might just be attractive to that one person. And then they're just going to mimic it just like a parrot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yeah, that's, that's so frustrating. <laughs> that's, I mean, it, it, I think it does lend credence to the idea that I, I think it's like 60% of people I, I could be wrong on the the percentage, but there a large number of people just walk around with no internal monologue. Yeah, and it's like that is so scary to me. Like, and on on the view of Ayn Rand, uh, language plays a very important part of the process of concept formation uh, because you can't really retain a concept until you've attached a label to it. You know, yeah. like the word tree. Like I could look at all sorts of different trees and, uh, you know, sort of abstract what it means to have treeiness. Um, through, like, if you want to read up on this, go to my uh, liquidzulu.github.io slash brain and look up uh, uh, theory of concepts, something like that, the objectivist theory of concepts, whatever. Um, yeah, I could, I could go through that entire process, um, a very complex process, which only humans can do as far as we can tell. And I can have the concept of treeness in my head but if I don't attach a label to it, it's just going to float out of my head and I can't recall it again. So I'd have to go through the entire process of, oh, what was it with those things out in that direction? Oh, that's, oh, yes, I now understand it again. And then I can start working with it. So I yeah. need to attach a label to it. And that what that is doing is it's turning it into an actual concrete thing. I can write tree down on a piece of paper and I can look at that as a concrete stand-in for the concept and I go, Yep, I know what concept that represents. Um, so I would say there's probably a relation there with the people who have no internal monologues. They can't hear words in their head, you know. Yeah, that's just crazy to me. My my brain just didn't function that way. And so to think somebody's just out there just walking with nothing going on is well, so hard for really, me to imagine. What's really crazy is the people, like there's also aphantasia where you can't, uh, picture things in your head like if you think of like an apple you just like think of like vague concepts related to appleness rather than actually seeing an apple in your head you can't actually picture things in your head so oh, i want to know what the the intersection of these two things where you have no internal monologue and you can't see things in your head like what the hell is going on up there like what is even happening yeah i mean that that leads to a lot of crazy crazy ideas of exactly what the hell is going on out in the world because i mean that's that's just like a literal npc yeah just walking around which i i think just makes that that meme just even that much funnier like that that's just wild which i guess that's why certain things like you know a, a psychological operation or just like large scale brainwashing just works so well and people are just able to just absorb it and you know that there's the famous thing that Edward Bernays did um pushing uh propaganda to up the sale of pork 
And now all of a sudden in the United States, bacon and eggs is just like the American breakfast. And it's like, that was completely just based off of propaganda. Is that to, the same uh, Bernays who made the sauce? Or is that a different Bernays? No, different Bernays, I believe. <laughs> I was thinking, is this food related? I was going to make a Bernays sauce joke. And I was like, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's just, I mean, I, I laugh about this, that the, the same Edward Bernays, he, he created a propaganda campaign during uh, the suffragettes movement, you know, the, the women's right to vote movement right. of uh, at the time, you know, women weren't allowed to smoke in public. And all of a sudden he pushes a campaign of women smoking in public and holding up the cigarettes as torches of freedom. And it's like that just got absorbed so well by so many people. And it's like, that Very is Randian. Yes. Yeah. It's, and it, I just look at like a public relations campaign like that. And I'm like, that's beautiful. That is just beautiful. It's nefarious, but it's beautiful, man. That's so I guess the, the MPC is just, it's real. It is, it is real. And so we'll, we'll start wrapping up on this. Cause I don't want to keep you too long, but throughout all of your experience, what, what do you think is the antidote to all of this? Because obviously the path that we are on is, uh, I'll just keep it at Western civilization is, is, is not sustainable. And th there obviously is a clear, clear path in which way, in, in which, um, things should be operating, um, uh, I, I wholeheartedly believe in anarcho-capitalism and that that would allow humanity to just, just excel to such a degree that we have never seen before. So what do you believe the antidote is to the, the, the current NPC chaos that we're living through? Um, be like me. Um, integrate objectivism and uh, anarcho-capitalism uh, do it well and spread it um, those are the steps you can take within your own life uh, obviously i'm not going to uh, advocate this as some sort of a duty um but you know if, if you enjoy doing that sort of thing then you know do it yourself if you don't enjoy doing it but you enjoy seeing it done then you know hey uh coffee.com <laughs> slash uh, you yeah. know you can support that type of thing being done um, but yeah, that's, that's the basic praxis there. Uh, that's how you solve it. And you're not going to solve it by trying to appeal for votes or, you know, trying to appeal to everybody in the room. Uh, that's just going kind of productive because, uh, in the words of, uh, Leonard Reed, uh, what the politician is, is he just a thermometer of the political temperature, right? There's a certain political temperature in the room and the, the politician is just a thermometer of that. Um, the politician as a politician, at least, you know, the politician might be doing other things on the side where he is moving the temperature, but in his uh, duties as a politician, just as a politician, he is not doing anything. He's following the political temperature. This is why you see like Biden back in the eighties, he was the crying gay marriage and now he's loving it. Right. Cause he's just, he's yeah. following the political temperature and he has to, 
or else he's out of office, right? All of the politicians have to do this. They don't, they aren't the prime movers. They're also second-handers. The dictator yeah. is also a second-hander. He isn't the one driving what people believe. He is still following along with what people believe. He is still he still has to adopt whatever the popular message is, or else he doesn't get to be a dictator, right? Yeah. This is what is found out in the fountainhead. If you read it, it's a big revelation when you get there and you'll be like, Eureka, I completely understand what it is that Azulu's talking about here. because uh, I can see it in actual perceptual form, which is the purpose of art, is to concretize a philosophy. And the fountainhead is brilliant at this. Uh, so you should read it if you want to know more about that. Uh, yeah, that, that's 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 the upshot. Just yeah, be like me. Yeah. Well, I I think that's well said. Um, something that that was said to me recently that I I thought was really interesting is that this I I don't want to call it a war because I I think that <laughs> that whole idea you know the war on this the war on that is it's, it, I don't know it's colloquial. It's drugs have won the war on drugs. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's it's just so so strange to call like the war on whatever. Um, but this thing that we're going through, which I am entirely sick of, um, it's going to be won in the home and it's going to be fought. It's being fought at the individual level because that's who they're trying to distinguish or extinguish, I should say, um, is the individual. And so one of the best ways I personally have found to fight back against a lot of this is changing yourself, uh, working on yourself and just becoming better, becoming smarter, uh, learning, learning. I'll, I'll just stick with that. Just learning different things and uh, becoming more independent. Um, yeah, learning out loud. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So on that, I think we'll wrap up, but I do have one last question. Uh, this is this is a question I ask all of my guests because I absolutely love getting the different perspectives. And I think you're going to have a, a really, really interesting answer to this. Um, why does liberty matter in the first place? Like, why why does any of this matter? Because you have free will. Your mind is able to change things you're able to choose your actions and therefore uh, there are certain choices which you make that are wrong uh, just by definition you shouldn't make those choices it's 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 the irreducible primary of ought not uh, which is i suppose not even irreducible it's just not don't false incorrect <laughs> that, is, that is the primary there it's incorrect that you should be evil and aggressive just in the exact same way that it's incorrect that uh, a is non-a these are the, the same type of statement uh, one is an epistemic norm sure and the other is a an ethical norm but they're both norms fundamentally uh, if i say that the sky is blue what i'm saying is you ought believe that the sky is blue i'm still making an ought claim there right so i don't want to be hearing any of this nonsense which we hear all over the place that ought statements have no meaning it's just mere semantics it doesn't, it doesn't pertain to reality at all no this is a real issue 
there really is this thing called conflicts out there, and you get into them all the goddamn time, right? Every time you see on your tax bill, uh, on, on your uh, paycheck, that tax, that is a conflict being initiated against you. That's very important for your life. Every time uh, somebody scrapes your car and just drives off, that's an aggression being done against you. You need to stop all of these things, and you will be much, much, much happier. That is how you survive. Uh, this is these aggressive activities. They are apocalyptic, right? We all understand why apocalypse is bad. These activities are their own mini level of apocalypse, and that is why liberty matters because it's anti-apocalypse. I think that was very well said. Um, do you want to give your shout outs where people can find you, what you have going on, um, if, if people want to learn more? Sure, you can find me on youtube.com forward slash liquidzulu for my videos. I've got an AIR video coming down the pipeline shortly. Um, uh, I've got uh, courses being worked on on liquidzulu.github.io. Uh, you can see the link uh, just below my name there. Um, no, there's only one course out in the moment, but I think it's a good one. It's a real doozy. Um, and then there's also my wiki, which is liquidzulu.github.io forward slash brain. And you can find <laughs> out every, I'm basically, that is the main source of my uh, attempted integration of objectivism and uh, anarcho-capitalism. It's going to be there. So I'm going over the entire theory of all of philosophy, right down from metaphysics, all the way up into you know the remote conclusions within economics. So theoretically, once it's all done, uh, if it's you know done in a certain sense, you know it's it's when it's at a sufficient point, then you'll be able to trace right down from the Cantillon effect all the way back to the primacy of existence. If you click enough times, you know it's going to be just the best wiki that has ever been made, and you can find that there. It's just it's still a work in progress. I'm only you know, sort of into the epistemology at the moment. I'm up onto the theory of concept formation, so breaking out of the epistemology soon. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a great place to go. Hell yeah. I'm going to have to check that out because that that sounds incredible, honestly. And to have such a resource like that available, honestly, good on you. Uh, I, I, I hope that, uh, you know, that that really does change everything for the better um you know what what's interesting right before we close out here um i had actually found you um through youtube uh initially and i had followed you on twitter um and youtube but i never connected the two i didn't like put <laughs> the two together and realize you were you were of one and and so before the the uh the debate um i had i had realized oh yeah i've already been watching this guy that makes <laughs> a lot of sense you know so that's that's really cool to hear that you've you've put together something like that and honestly everyone listening if you're listening to this make sure and go check that out because that's that's going to be an invaluable resource uh, if you're listening to this and you've made it this far, um, then I'm sure you're going to find it very interesting. So, 
Hey, I would like to thank you very much for coming on. Uh, this was awesome. We'll have to get you back on, have some more discussions. We'll we'll get into some more specific topics and dive deeper next time. Um, I, I think that would be a lot of fun. I am not able to have a lot of these conversations so uh, with too many people anyways. So um, yeah, I think that would be a lot of fun. Thank you for coming on this time. And uh, everyone else listening, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Rise to Liberty. Um, we've got some more episodes scheduled. So just keep an eye out. Um, we streamed to Instagram uh, for this one, which I think is interesting. Hopefully that, that went well. Um, I'll check the analytics later. It was a new thing they offered and uh, got a, quite a few followers over there. So figured a couple of people might find it interesting. But that, uh, right? More yeah, strength. exactly. Just trying to figure out where to get the most traction. So, because just like you, I'm, I'm trying to put these ideas out there and boy, you're right. There's a lot of people that do end up laughing at you, but I just keep chugging <laughs> yeah. along, man. So, all right. And on that note, Everyone else, until next time, stay free, my friends. Woot woot.